Good morning. Thank you to Bruce Pan for leading us into worship this morning. Uh, a couple brief things to touch on. Ellie Nielsen has moved to Paris, Paris, Illinois, uh, which is like the Paris of Eastern Illinois. Um, I don't have her address yet. I'm going to try to get that. But uh, yeah, just be, she moved to be closer to family, and uh, definitely I'm going to miss Ellie a lot. Um, and uh, but yeah, just please keep her in your prayers and. I uh, definitely told her if she's ever back up in the area visiting to, to stop by and, and join us. Uh, we did mention earlier this book, Rediscovering Church, or Rediscovered Church, rather. Uh, Grace had ordered this book, and we stole it. No, we did, Grace ordered this book, and we um, they had extra copies. So it's like 20 copies that they gave us for free. And that's why we said just try to limit it to one per household, because uh, we didn't pay for these books um, so we're not charging for the books, and so we just want to, you know, anybody, you know, who, who wants one. Uh, the authors of this book, Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman, uh, I, I respect both those guys. They do a lot of work with the Gospel Coalition. Lehman does a lot of work with Nine Marks Ministries, if, if you're familiar with that. And uh, I think they're both very solid. So uh, I do recommend the book, and, uh, but yeah, we've got copies in the back. Um, Daylight Savings Time is today, so... What that means is that the sermon will be about an hour longer than usual. Um, and um, last thing before I get into our passage in Exodus chapter 12, uh, my office hours, just because the baby have been adjusted, so they're Fridays right now from noon to 2 p.m. So if you ever need to stop by, you know, obviously if anybody needs to, to talk to me or meet with me, uh, it doesn't have to be during that time. I think I'm pretty flexible. And, uh, but again, always happy to make time and uh, visit with anybody. And, uh, and yeah, I welcome that for, for sure. Uh, ex- yep, Exodus chapter 12. We'll be talking about the whole chapter today, but I'm actually going to just read an excerpt of it. Um, and then we'll jump into our text. So Exodus 12, I'll begin in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to again come together to worship you. We pray for Keiko Hansen with this pancreatic cancer diagnosis, Lord, and we pray for for healing and recovery, Lord. We pray for strength in this time of, I'm sure, fear and uncertainty, Lord. We pray for peace, Lord, and through the terrible infirmities that people face, Lord, in their lives and in the lives of family. Lord, we just pray for you to be glorified in all things and for you to shine through, Lord, in ways that are sometimes not even expected or foreseen, Lord, but we do pray for her, Lord, as she battles this horrible disease. Lord, we pray for our time in your word. We pray for communion that we'll be receiving in a few minutes. Lord, we pray that our our hearts and minds be ready and prepared for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the book, The Only Plane in the Sky, it's a book that gives an oral history of September 11th. And it gives the perspective of probably hundreds of witnesses, pilots, air traffic controllers, government officials, people on the ground. Pretty much a 360 minute by minute view of the day. But there's one anecdote in that book that's always struck me. Mike Walter, who was a correspondent for USA Today, was in Washington that day and ended up covering the attack on the Pentagon. And he shares an interaction that he had with a writer for the Wall Street Journal who made the observation, this is the biggest story we'll ever cover in our lives. I'm not even sure it's going to end up on the front page tomorrow. And what he meant by that was in comparison to what had happened in New York, what was happening in Washington seemed almost less significant. Now, the guy's thought isn't exactly true to what happened, because obviously the next day what happened in New York and Washington and Pennsylvania was all part of the same event and covered on the front page of the news. But I do think that the observation has some truth to it as we think about over 20 years that have passed and the books that have come out, the documentaries that have come out, the specials that have come out. And so often, if we're being observant, what happened in New York seems to overshadow what happened in Washington and Pennsylvania. All of it significant and all of it tragic. But I think that's true. Over the past month, we've talked about the Exodus and the plagues of the Exodus. That's all we've talked about. And we come to this tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. Far and away, the most severe of the plagues. But in the book of Exodus, in this chapter, it's almost secondary. Exodus 12 revolves really around Passover, its institution, its celebration and remembrance. Yes, the plague is there, but it's almost mentioned in passing. Exodus 12 is a long chapter, 51 verses. The tenth plague, the most severe of the plagues, the one that the other plagues were leading up to, is covered in four verses. It's there, 
but it's not on the front page. The headline for chapter 12 is the Passover. That's primarily what the chapter is about. The Passover is one of the most significant and enduring events in the Old Testament. Now, there is a lot going on in Exodus chapter 12. And so before we jump into the passage this morning, I want to give a brief summary. In Exodus 12, the Passover is an act of divine deliverance in the 10th plague where the Lord strikes dead the firstborn of the Egyptians but spares the Israelites. God instructs the Israelites to identify themselves as his followers by placing blood on the doorpost of their homes. Exodus 12 also gives, gives instruction for a feast that the Israelites were to have in preparation for the Passover that the Lord was going to do. And it also gives commands for continuing to celebrate the Passover as an annual tradition. Before and after the Passover, many elements of the feast are symbols of the Israelites' Being delivered by God. Again, the Passover feast itself is highly symbolic. And one last thing that we'll see in a lot of the symbolism points to the speed and the haste with which the Israelites were to leave Egypt. And these are all things that we'll elaborate on more as we get into the chapter. Something else we'll discuss is how Passover is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so we'll look at Passover today in three phases. Past, in Exodus 12. Present, its fulfillment in Christ. And future, the hope that we have. So Passover, past, present, and future. And the main idea of this passage today is that the Lord saves by the blood of the Lamb. And with that, we will jump into our passage this morning, Passover past. And I should also mention in the beginning that this will be the longest section of the three. So at the beginning of Exodus chapter 12, it gives the initial prescription of the Passover. And from the beginning of the chapter, it will establish that the Passover is something that is going to be of monumental significance. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. What the Lord is about to do will totally reorient the calendar for the Israelites. Think of how important Jesus is. Jesus split time in two. Somebody can be the most ardent atheist. But what year is it? 2021, and that's because of Jesus. And the Lord says that the Passover is going to be in the first month. The passage continues, and we'll talk about a sacrifice which people will make. Verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So everyone is called in Israel to take a lamb. And if someone doesn't have a lamb, 
or can't afford one, they're to pool their resources with neighbors and go in together and buy one. The passage says that it's to be a lamb without blemish. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. It matters because it be a, it matters that it be a lamb without blemish, because it's ultimately pointing to Jesus as the perfect and spotless lamb. It's also instructive that God wants our best. He doesn't want some sickly, old, about-to-die lamb. He doesn't want you to go to the dollar store and buy a lamb. He wants you to get it from Macy's, a good lamb. And the Israelites are to take and sacrifice their lamb. And once again, that points to the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's also beginning to introduce the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. That sacrifices in the Old Testament were done Mainly for three reasons. For sin and various sacrifices according to various types of sin. You had sacrifice in accordance with significant prayer requests. And you would do sacrifices as an act of praise and worship. And we see the beginnings of that or part of the beginnings of that here in Exodus 12. Sacrificing a prized animal was meant to be an act of faith because it showed trust in God's provision. That it was costly to do. It was meaningful to do. The language of sacrifice is picked up by Paul in Romans 12.1 where he instructs us, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, because of Christ... There is no longer sacrifices where animals are killed. But as his followers, we are to live in gratitude to the glorious Lord who has forgiven us through the cross and to live our lives as living sacrifices, living our lives in service to the Lord and for his glory. And again, the reason why we no longer need sacrifices involving the death of an animal is because the true sacrifice has already happened. That God did not spare his own son. Jesus, the perfect lamb, was led to slaughter. His life was given as the final and ultimate sacrifice so that all who believe in him can have forgiveness, to have atonement and life through him. But in the Exodus, on the verge of God's great and redemptive work for Israel, as a symbol of what was to come, the Lord asked the Israelites to sacrifice lambs. Verse 7, we see the significance of the blood of the lamb. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So after sacrificing the lamb, they put blood on the sides of the door frames and the Lintel, which is basically the top part of the door frame. The instructions continue. Verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. I touched on this a bit. But something that we see in these instructions is that they aim at speed. 
These elements of roasted lamb, unleavened bread, things that are historically part of the Passover meal, the Seder, these elements point to the haste through which the Israelites would flee Egypt and that's carried into the Passover meal. So basically, this idea of bitter herbs in your meal and unleavened bread, the Passover isn't primarily concerned with the wonderment of the cuisine itself. It's more of the symbolism that, that matters in the Passover meal. The flesh was roasted because that's the fastest way to cook it. And the theme continues in verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It's like being told that if you go to a restaurant and eat, you're going to keep your jacket on, like you're, you're ready to go, basically. You eat the meal still with your sandals on because you're ready to go. You have your staff meant for protection, meant for walking. You have that already in your hand. And it says even to eat it with haste. I would not have done it. For those who have eaten with me before, I am the slowest eater, unless it's pizza. And, um, but they're told, eat fast. And the verse ends, it is the Lord's Passover. And Passover could not be a more appropriate name for this holy day. Because on this first Passover, the faithful of the Lord were passed over and their lives were spared. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. In this event, the firstborn are struck down. Pharaoh had been warned many times of the consequences. The text says that it is a judgment on the gods of Egypt. That is, the non-existent gods of Egypt. Now, that's a point that we've made over the last several weeks throughout our study of the plagues. That in the preceding nine plagues, we see this battle between the Lord God and the fake Egyptian gods. And what we've seen in the plagues is that the Egyptian deities are helpless to protect the Egyptian people. And we'll see again when the Lord strikes dead the firstborn in Egypt that they once again cannot save them, again because they don't exist. In striking dead the firstborn, God could have taken any life that he wanted. He is showing once again his absolute sovereignty and dominion. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood was taken as a sign that a person trusted in the Lord. It's a matter of trusting what the Lord has promised. To not put the blood on the doorframe would show that someone didn't take the Lord seriously, didn't take his word seriously. And something that's important to understand about all of this, it's not that the blood itself in this event saved a person, but it was an outward sign of an inward faith that the Lord 
would bring deliverance and protection. Verses 14 through 16 goes back to establishing the annual Passover tradition. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. So it was going to be an ongoing tradition to eat unleavened bread. Even today, for observant Jews, people go to great lengths at the beginning of Passover to remove any leaven from their houses. Again, eating unleavened bread, once again, points to the haste with which the Egyptians, I'm sorry, with which the Israelites were to leave Egypt. Because the advantage of unleavened bread is that without a leavening agent such as yeast, you don't have to wait for the bread to rise. That's the whole point. Verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Verse 17 officially names the feast as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the entire week-long feast. Passover is the first day of the feast. And what's significant and why this chapter is significant in the Bible, as we see in the text, is that the day was meant to be continually observed. And that will be reiterated in verse 24. Verses 26 and 27 will tell the Israelites to teach their children about the event. This is remembering what God did for the Israelites. This feast was meant to point future generations back to God's deliverance and redemption. Now, verse 21 represents a shift in the story. Everything we've covered so far has been told to Moses and Aaron. But now, Moses will start instructing the elders of Israel in preparations for observing the Passover. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. In verse 23, they're told of the specific judgment which the Egyptians will face. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. So I've said a lot so far about Passover in this passage. Verse 29 is where the passage tells us about the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, the actual deliverance that the Lord brings for Israel through this plague. Verses 29 and 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down at the, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. 
And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. As we've discussed in the other plagues, we once again see an undoing of creation. The crowning achievement of the Lord's creation in Genesis was creating man in his own image on the sixth day. And in Exodus, he takes life away. It is the final judgment upon Pharaoh, who had been warned nine previous times. It is the final judgment for the enslavement of the Israelites. God brings death. But for his followers, there is life. Pharaoh will tell Moses and Aaron to take the Israelites and leave. Verse 31. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So he tells them to leave. Pharaoh will actually later on change his mind and try to stop them. But God is with the Israelites, and they're delivered from Egypt. Verse 38 mentions a mixed multitude who accompanied the Israelites. Now, I mentioned that before in this series, but it's again worth pointing out that at least some non-Israelites had come to believe on the Lord through all of this. The Egyptians had seen God's mighty acts and great power too, and then also had the opportunity to trust in him when the Israelites were delivered. And that's the same situation everyone faces, whether or not to trust in the Lord. We don't have to put blood on our doorposts to save us. But ultimately, that was an act of faith. And that hasn't changed because we, too, are called to trust and believe in the Lord, the mighty God who delivered his people from slavery, the God who delivers us from our sins when we believe in his son. That's the original Passover, Passover past. We come to Passover present, and once again, our second and third points will be quicker. As is clear from the passage, this event was meant to be celebrated annually. And the Jews did, and observant Jews still do today. Now, I previously referenced the Seder dinner. Seder comes from a Hebrew word for order. In 3,500 years Rabbinic tradition and teaching helped solidify and establish the formal and traditional Seder meal. Some of these elements are traced back to the original Passover meal. Others came to Jewish tradition from various rabbinical sources. Once the Israelites were in the Promised Land, and after the temple was built... That also impacted Passover traditions. When you had the temple, the lambs were sacrificed at the temple. But what didn't change was that people could only sacrifice lambs that were perfect. I think it's worth spending so much time in talking about Passover because I think it can help give us a greater context and understanding for the events surrounding the death of Jesus. In the Gospels, The time of the death of Christ 
revolves around Passover. And that's not a coincidence. Jesus would be sacrificed at the time that was associated with sacrifice. Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for Passover. In Jerusalem, the city within the Roman Empire that was the epicenter of Jewish life and culture, thousands of lambs would be slaughtered annually. Jewish people would be coming in from all over the Roman Empire. Now, if you remember in Luke chapter 2, there's a story about Jesus as a child, the only story about him as a kid in any of the Gospels, aside from his birth stories. And his parents lose track of him, Luke 2 verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, because that's what good Jews did. And we see many traditions of the Seder and the Last Supper. Some of them are small things. And the gospel accounts, it talks about Jesus reclining at the table in Luke 22. That doesn't mean that Jesus is sitting in a lazy boy. He's lying down basically on a couch, which was a Seder tradition. And the reason why that was a tradition was because it pointed to the security that the Israelites now had, having been delivered by God. We see another Passover tradition at the Last Supper, when Jesus is speaking to his betrayer, Judas. John 13, 26. I forgot to actually paste. I'll read the text. John 13, 26, Jesus says, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. I forget if I've made this point before, because I know we've talked about John 13, but I think it's really easy when we read this passage to have this mental image that he's dipping the bread into like a bowl of olive oil. He's not. They're not eating at an Italian restaurant. It's the Passover Seder. And what is probably actually happening is one of the aspects to the Passover meal is this concoction of apples and cinnamon and nuts called haroset that you would put bread in. And that's probably actually what Jesus is giving to Judas. Just as at the Passover Seder, at the Last Supper, they ate unleavened bread. The bread that we use for communion that we'll be having in a few moments is unleavened bread. I don't know if you've ever seen unleavened bread before, but this is what it looks like. It's really more like a cracker than what we think of as like a loaf of bread. Bread with a leavening agent is doughy. You can pull it apart. Unleavened bread is brittle and breaks apart. We see Jesus breaking bread in Luke twenty-two nineteen. It says, and he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For over a thousand years of Seder dinners, bread had been broken. Unleavened bread. Just like what their Israelite forefathers had eaten before fleeing from Egypt. And here we see the body of Jesus given for you. Given for your sins. Given for your forgiveness. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. What more fitting words could you say 
at a Passover Seder. A meal that revolves around remembrance, about retelling the story of God saving his people by the blood of the Lamb. Remembering what God has done. Remembering what Jesus has done. Remembering the sins that he's redeemed you from. Remembering his body that he gave for you. Remembering the death that he died for you. Remembering the grace that he offers to you. Remembering his gospel. Jesus takes the cup, Luke twenty two twenty, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Seder involves four glasses of wine. This is probably after the second or third glass. There's scholarly debate. But how profound it is. Wine, drank in remembrance of the Passover. And Jesus takes the wine. He blesses it. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood at the Seder dinner. It clearly points backward to the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood that was put on the doorposts of people's homes. And it also points forward to the blood of Christ, shed for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the true lamb. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the true Lamb of God. The Lamb who took the penalty for our sins. The Lamb who was sacrificed for the salvation of God's people. And by trusting in Him and having faith in Him, that puts the blood on the doorposts of your heart. On the first Passover... There would not have been a pardon for a person who didn't put blood on their doorpost. It wasn't that the blood saved them. God saved them. But to not put the blood on the door was to show that a person didn't have faith in the Lord. Didn't trust in the Lord. Similarly, we too must all have faith and believe in him. To believe in his blood that was shed for our sins. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He's pointed to in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the one who took the penalty for our sins. A lamb couldn't do that. It was meant to point ahead to the true Passover lamb. The true lamb of God who bore the wrath of God and forgave us our sins. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Isaiah 53, 12 says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he should divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So it's talking about the suffering servant in Isaiah. It calls him the perfect lamb. And Isaiah says he poured out his soul to death. And Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant 
in my blood. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's not arbitrary. Jesus was not just using random things that were around. It's all symbolic. It takes symbols important to the first Passover, the first time God delivered Israel, and reminds us of the new Passover from the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Passover passage in Exodus 12, verse 5, says that the lamb that was used was to be without blemish. Jesus is the ultimate lamb without blemish, who lived a life of perfection. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb. The blood of both is on wooden beans. The doorpost of a home, the blood on the cross. Both the Passover lamb and Jesus were killed publicly. On the day that Jesus was crucified for our sins, the day ends at sunset. And on the Jewish calendar, the next day was a day of rest. Jesus and the two robbers had to die, if you remember in the Gospels, before sunset. We see this in John chapter 19. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who, was, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. No bones were broken on Jesus' body when he died. In the Passover passage, Exodus 12.46 gives the Israelites instruction for consuming the lamb. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Jesus wasn't just putting a twist on Passover. But rather, Jesus was revealing the true meaning of Passover. It was Jesus showing something that had been part of the divine plan all along. The Lord saves by the blood of the Lamb. But you have to believe it. You have to accept his blood. You can't make him some abstract force, but the personal God who saves you from your sins. The person who gave his body and shed his blood for you. To accept what he has done by faith and to believe in him. We come to the final point, and this one will be brief. We've covered Passover as it's instituted in Exodus. We've looked at how it's fulfilled in Christ, past and present. We close by looking at the final future fulfillment of these elements, Passover future. In the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, Jesus has been very active in his churches. In Revelation 4, the Apostle John is given a vision of the throne room of heaven. This wondrous sight to behold. But Jesus is absent until we get to to Revelation chapter 5. And John sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lamb had been slain but is risen. 
And because the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of man was slain and rose, that is our hope that we can stand before God in that same throne room. In Revelation 19, there is a vision of the great wedding feast. And who is the groom? Again, it is the Lamb. Revelation 19.9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God is an inviting God. Jews and Egyptians alike were able to turn to him and trust in him on the first Passover. And today, people of every tribe and tongue and nation, of every background, are able to turn to Christ and to believe in him. At Passover, Jesus told us of his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. And he invites us in a meal to remember him. The next day, he was sacrificed as the Passover lamb. But at the final feast, at the end of time, we are again invited to join the lamb at that feast as well. It is he who invites us, and it is he who pays for our admission. And all we have to do is to believe in him and accept that by faith. As the Israelites trusted in the deliverance of the Lord and put the blood on their doorposts, we too can know that we have sinned and are freely forgiven when we accept the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, slain for the forgiveness of our sins. The Lord saves by the blood of the Lamb. Now, if the people who are helping with communion today can come forward, both with the Passover and the Lord's Supper, there's this theme of remembrance. Remembering what the Lord has done. As Christians, we're called to remember the gospel. On the night that he was betrayed, on the night before the day that Jesus went to the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, he broke bread. Again, a familiar symbol of the Passover meal. But Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember what Jesus has done when we take communion. We remember that there is grace. We remember that there is forgiveness. And we're called to remember because it's so easy to forget. We remember that we have a good God who loves us. And in a tumultuous and chaotic world, may we remember that God is still on the throne. He is still the king. And so we remember and we celebrate what the Lord has done. Jesus gave his body for us. Jesus shed his blood for us. He is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed so that we could be forgiven. And may we always 